and turn together, take our Bibles and turn together to Acts chapter 17. And uh, I suspect there may be a question or two in your mind. And uh, tonight we were kicking off wide, what is it? That's the word, that's it. Wow, wide open world downstairs with all our young people. And people were dressing up in various things and people constrained me to dress up in my Highland costume, so to speak. So I, I yielded to that, but they have absolutely no idea how long it takes to get this stuff on. And they said, you can get it on, then you can get it off and get up here to preach. And I tried it, but there was absolutely no way I could do it. So I asked one or two elders down there. The other elders are up here. can consult the ones down there who gave me the permission to come on here now and preach in this outfit. <clears throat> so with that put to one side, now let's focus on, on the text before us this evening. And it's a great, it's a great section of Scripture. I'm actually not used to being dressed with so much stuff, so it's restricting my freedom somewhat. Um, I'd really like to take my jacket off, but that would be exceeding the bounds. I've also broken promises to people. I did promise to some people I would not wear a bow tie. Not because these are anti-bow tie people, you understand. They just felt there were enough bow ties, and another one wouldn't be a good idea. But, but only with this outfit, okay? Only with this outfit. Okay, let's clear that up. Okay, Acts chapter 17. We're moving on at, fast, at a fast pace in the book of Acts. And perhaps no section is more important for us to get to grips with than the section that we're now moving into. We saw at the end of chapter 16, and we read it earlier, some of the hostility that the early Christians encountered. And now in chapter 17, we're going to find that hostility re uh, assert itself. Paul travels from Philippi where the incidents recorded in, earlier in chapter 16 have taken place about 94 miles to Thessalonica or Thessalonica, the capital of Macedonia in Greece. And when Paul's writing to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul recounts as he recalls his visit to them that they had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So there's boldness on the part of the preachers. Uh, the gospel is the message that they're teaching, but conflict is the context in which that message was being proclaimed. And in this little section we're going to look at this evening, which really is the first 15 verses of chapter 17, what we find is the apostles proclaiming Christ, we find the Thessalonians agitating and stirring up and fomenting persecution, and we find the Bereans examining Scripture. Those are the three vignettes in the story that we're looking at this evening, and they, they are inter, they're interlaced with each other, they're mixed in with each other, they, they, build up, they build into one another to give a big picture of the kind of experiences that the people then were going through, and which people today in the church worldwide are going through in which we ourselves, though perhaps we're not as aware of it as we should be, are encountering today. So let's take a look, first of all, then, at the first section, beginning in verse 1, and notice the apostles proclaiming Christ. Luke tells us that Paul went to the synagogue. He focuses in on that at the beginning. This was 
This was the apostolic practice. Wherever they went, they would find the synagogue first. Why would they do that? Well, they did that because the gospel was for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. They understood that before he was anything else, Jesus the Messiah was the Messiah of Israel. That before he was the king of anybody else, he was the king of the Jews. And so they began with those people. They taught the gospel to those people first of all. And in this synagogue, not only were there Jews, we're told, but there were many God-fearing Gentiles who were interested in finding out more about the, the religion of Israel. I want you to notice what Paul did with them. Look at how it's described here. He goes in, as is his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Messiah. Now what is the apostle doing here? You notice that the language, if you know your Bible well, you, you will have heard an echo of this language before. You realize that what he is doing for these people in this synagogue is precisely what the Lord Jesus had done for the disciples prior to Pentecost. Prior to Pentecost, the Lord Jesus had appeared, you remember, to the disciples in his resurrection body. And the same verb is used by Luke in recalling that incident in Luke's Gospel. The same verb when Jesus opens the Scriptures to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus and explains to them from all of the Scriptures the things concerning himself. He goes to Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and from those various parts of the Scripture, the wisdom literature, the Pentateuch, and the prophets, he teaches them the things concerning himself. In fact, what Luke tells us back there in the first volume of his work is that the Lord opened their minds to understand. He opened their minds to grasp the truth that Jesus was teaching to them. And that's, what, that's what's happening here in this synagogue. Paul, Paul is copying the practice of the Lord Jesus and he's opening up the Scriptures to these people. We, we already know by reading the book of Acts what kind of Scriptures they would have referred to. He would have referred, for example, to Psalm 16 or Isaiah uh, chapter 53. These are already been expounded at some length in various sermons in the book of Acts. You mustn't for one moment think the book of Acts is only a history book. It's laced with talks and sermons and doctrinal statements that are illustrated by the history and which explain what is going on in the story. And it was from these scriptures we've already discovered, from these scriptures like the Psalms and from Isaiah, that Paul and the other apostles taught the suffering to glory agenda of the Messiah. The suffering to glory agenda. You see, the idea among many of the Jews was only a glory agenda. That when the Messiah came, it would be all glory. It was a gospel of glory, of victory, of success, of triumph over the enemies of God's church at that time. And they had subverted or they'd sidetracked or they'd overlooked or they'd ignored those scriptures that seemed to teach that the Messiah is a suffering Messiah. You take the book of Psalms, for example. 
Throughout the book of Psalms, you see this constant refrain. You find the psalmist persecuted, despised, rejected. You find the godly man being hounded by his enemies. And then you find the Lord vindicating, raising up the godly man and exalting the godly man. If you look through the book of the Psalms as a whole, you'll find that in individual Psalms, it describes the, the, the individual, the godly man, the man of God or God's king, being attacked by his enemies and then God overthrowing his enemies and God exalting him back to his throne. If you look at the Psalms as a whole, you find there's a structure from the beginning to the end of attack, of suffering, of persecution. And then as you near the end of the book, you find the vindication of God until finally in that last ultimate Psalm, you find God exalting his, his servant. And it's all praise and it's all glory and it's all heaven and it's all exaltation. Well, that's built into the very fabric, into the warp and woof of the story uh, of the Psalter, the suffering to glory agenda of the Messiah. And also drawing attention, do you know, notice, it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. In other words, that the resurrection was absolutely central to the message of the prophets, absolutely vital to authenticate and to understand why it is that Jesus can be the, the Messiah or the last days, the final days, the end of times King of Israel. The, the Pentecost sermon in Acts 2 is centered in this very theme. It's explaining the coming of the Spirit, so often mentioned by the prophets. And it, it understands, or, or it, it takes for granted, that the coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost is evidence testing, testifying to the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And in that great chapter, Acts chapter 2, Peter argues about the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus to the throne. He argues two things. One, what does this mean? First of all, he says what it means is that God has put an end to the agony of death. God has put an end to the agony of death. That's Acts chapter 2 verse 24. In other words, the resurrection reverses the fall of man into sin. The fall of man into sin brings death. The wages of sin is death. And the resurrection reverses the work of Adam, reverses the disobedience of Adam. By raising Jesus from the dead, God has turned the clock back, as it were, to that particular decreation which is caused by death. Decreation has now been transfor transformed by the resurrection of Jesus into recreation, death to life, decay to newness of life. God has put an end to the agony of death. <clears throat> and secondly, God, by the resurrection, fulfills the promise to David to seat one of his descendants on his throne. Because in Acts chapter 2, Peter explains that Christ the Messiah has begun to sit down on the throne of the end time kingdom. And in fact, he quotes David. He says, David being a prophet, I'm reading from Acts chapter 2 verse 30, David being a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him 
that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he had not been abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, and being exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. In other words, what Peter is saying is this. From the resurrection of Jesus, things have gone global and cosmic in the purposes of God. The Messiah's prophecies have come true and God has installed his king on Zion. You find the same thing in that great second great sermon in the book of Acts in chapter 13 where Paul this time explains we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus as it is written in the second psalm you are my son today I have begotten you in other words the resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that he is the Messiah do you see that's what Paul is doing here. He's explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, I proclaim, is the Messiah of God. So right in the very heart of this preaching, then, is this crucial understanding that Jesus is God's King, that he has been raised up not to see corruption, that the Lord has given him the holy and sure blessings of David, that he is seated on the throne of Israel, on the throne of David, on the throne of God. He is a king. Now that helps you to understand then the reaction of the opponents in verse 7. They were right at one level to say that what Paul was saying was he was preaching that there is an, another king another king and that that is contrary to the decrees of Caesar Jesus resurrection is in in inextricably bound to the understanding that he is Israel's king and that's why right at the beginning of Acts we find that conversation about the kingdom of God the kingdom of God and the disciples asking the question, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus doesn't answer the question there. He answers it on the day of Pentecost. And the answer is yes. I'm going to begin to do that now. I'm going to begin to do that because I'm going to sit on that throne, the throne of David. And I'm going to begin the process by which more men and women, boys and girls, are brought into the kingdom of God as they come into a relationship with Jesus, the Messiah. So you have the apostles proclaiming Christ. Then secondly, you have the Thessalonians fomenting persecution. You notice that the seed of the word of God provokes different results. There were some Jews, we're told, who were persuaded. That is, they, they were persuaded that what was being said was in the Bible and was true. There were a number of God-fearing Greeks who believed. That is, they believed the message of the apostles and they trusted in Jesus. So there was this sizable number, you see, of uh, these God-fearing people who are now converted to this new religion of Christianity. And as a result, there was jealousy and a violent reaction on the part of the authorities of the synagogue. Now this is very interesting. The same Greek word 
uh, is used to give us two different English words. And in fact, in context, in the Greek, it's the same. The same Greek word expresses both jealousy on the one hand and zeal, zealousness for God on the other. And I think there's a lesson in that very thing. You see, these men, we're told, were provoked to jealousy. And what they do next, they think or they argue or they argue to themselves they're doing out of a zeal for the glory of God and out of a zeal for the glory of God's kingdom. When in fact, Luke identifies that what they're doing is not being done out of zeal, it's being done out of jealousy. They were jealous that Paul had marked, walked into their synagogue, taught from their scripture, and that these God-fearers who'd been attending as potential proselytes to Judaism were now converted to Christianity. You see, you and I need to watch this too. That sometimes we can persuade ourselves that what we're doing, we're doing out of a zeal for God, out of a zeal for the honor of God's name, or the honor of God's church, or the kingdom of God. We can persuade ourselves that's what we're doing, when in fact what we're doing is avenging our own bruised ego. We're defending ourselves and our reputation, trying to save our face and not really zealous for the kingdom of God. There's a warning in the behavior of these Jews here. Well, instead of, instead of resorting to arguing biblically, they resorted to violence. What they did was they hired some Gentile thugs who were hanging around the marketplace and encouraged them to cause a disturbance. So there was this apparently public and spontaneous outrage against Paul. The mob stormed the home of somebody called Jason, a brother called Jason. They seized him. They pulled him out. They dragged him and other Christians before the city officials. And the mob violence instigated a series of persecutions against the Thessalonian Christians. Paul refers to this in his letter to Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews there who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. He goes on to say this to them in, in 2 Thessalonians. He said, We ourselves boast about your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions, in all your afflictions that you're enduring. You've been considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So here's this mixed mob of Jews and Gentiles making no mention of the original subject, the resurrection of Christ. Now they're just rejecting Paul's they're not only rejecting Paul's Christ-centered reading of the Bible, but they're stirring up trouble for, trouble for its own sake. And what, what they did was, what are they doing here? They're distorting the message. What they're saying is this, these people, these Christian people, do you know what these Christian people are saying? They're saying there's another king who's setting himself up in opposition to Caesar. Caesar is the emperor. Caesar is the only king. These people are traitorous. They're Treason, treasonous. These people are 
have a political agenda to cause disturbance within the empire. And of course there could be nothing further from the truth. There could be nothing further from the truth in terms of the understanding of, of the early Christians about what they were saying. Jesus had clearly said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus had clearly taught that his servants should use due process of law, live within the order of the state. That they should give their prior allegiance to King Jesus, but in terms of their human and everyday behavior, they should give allegiance to whoever was in power, whatever form of government there was in the place where they lived, that they should live within the structure of the powers that be that were ordained of God. What they were doing, these people, was distorting the message. They were so hostile, they even followed Paul to the next city to persecute him there. It's very interesting. There was, a, there was a background to this kind of behavior. You go back to the Old Testament. There you see a man called Ahab. He's the king of Israel. He's married to a woman called Jezebel, whose name is, lives on in infamy. She was a pagan princess, and he was a pagan king. Her father was uh, the king of Sidon, and she introduced idolatry or rein reinforced idolatry in Israel. And Elijah the prophet prophesied against them. God gave him a word. Elijah comes along and he says, you know, God says there's going to be a devastating drought on the land because of the idolatry that you've reintroduced. And Ahab goes around saying, where's this guy Elijah who's the disturber of Israel, the troubler of Israel? He's causing trouble for all of us. He's bringing this terrible drought upon us. When eventually Elijah and Ahab meet together, Ahab says to Elijah, Is that you, Elijah, troubler of Israel? And Elijah says to the king, It's you who's brought trouble to Israel. You brought trouble to Israel by disregarding the word of God, disregarding the law of God, introducing false worship into the worship of God. You have the same thing in the experience of Jeremiah the prophet. Zedekiah was the last king of Judah, the last king in David's line to reign in Jerusalem. Jerusalem had been besieged by the Babylonian army, but there was a revolt in Egypt, and the Babylonian army left Jerusalem and went down to deal with Egypt. And everybody in Jerusalem heaved a sigh of relief. Jeremiah had been preaching, the Babylonians are going to take the city. The Babylonians are going to flatten the city. You should yield rather than resist. And they said about Jeremiah, this man is in some kind of cahoots with the, the Babylonians. Here were the words of Jeremiah. He said this, thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. He goes out to the Chaldeans, the Babylonians shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live, he said. What did the officials say? The officials said, let this man be put to death, for he's weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. This man is not seeking the welfare of the people, but their harm. And the point I'm making is that Paul in Thessalonica, Ahab in Israel, Jeremiah in Judah and Jerusalem, are all doing the same thing. They are teaching and preaching the unpopular word of God. 
And there are men and women who will distort what they're saying for their own ends. When you preach the Word of God that is not popular in the generation in which you declare it. Now this persecution that begins here, interestingly, when the Apostle Paul is reflecting back on what happens in Thessalonica, which he does in two letters that we have in our New Testament, one and two Thessalonians. As he's reflecting back on those events, he looks at them from a particular perspective. He looks at them through the lens of some prophecies that were made in, the, in, the, in these Hebrew scriptures by the prophet Daniel. You can read about these for yourself in Daniel chapter 11. But Daniel predicted that in the last days, there would be a final foe of God. We, we call him the Antichrist. Daniel didn't call him that, but he was referring to the Antichrist. The final foe of God in the world. This final foe would do several things. He would desecrate the temple of God. And he would deceive many of God's believing people. Now, when the Apostle Paul is writing to the Thessalonians about this very event that we're reading about this evening, this persecution event, and events that, that flowed out of this, a false teacher, false teaching, for example, in the Thessalonian church, that the resurrection had already happened and that there was no final bodily resurrection to come. False teaching about the resurrection. Interesting. Paul preached on the resurrection and it was that very theme that is subverted in the, by the false teachers after he leaves. Isn't that an interesting thing? Very often, the very doctrines for which a church is known, the very authentic doctrines for which a church is widely known, and the Thessalonians were widely known for the word of God that had gone out from them, is the very area that is attacked by the enemy. And what Paul argues as he writes his letters is this. There will be a final foe who will desecrate the temple of God, who will deceive many people in the last days. But that final promise, that final picture, has already right now, right now in your space and time here, begun to be fulfilled. The mystery of lawlessness, he says. The mystery of lawlessness, this lawless one who is to come, this mystery is already at work, he writes to them. He is restrained right now. He isn't allowed full freedom right now. When the lawless one will be revealed in the last day, he will be destroyed by the breath of Jesus' mouth. But right now, the lawless one is at work in the church. What is he doing? He is desecrating the temple of God whose temple you are if you're the church of God. You see? The church is the temple of God, isn't it? He's building up His people as parts of this temple, as living stones in this temple. And whatever Satan insinuates into a church, people or individuals who subvert the doctrine of that church or who smuggle in teaching that is contrary either to the Word of God or to the law of God, 
then the mystery of lawlessness, what is going to be manifested on that final day in that final enemy of God and his people, is already at work. That's Paul's argument as he describes these events. That's his theological reflection on what's going on in this chapter. He says, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, subverting the work of God and the word of God and the law of God. Whatever you see persecution, whatever you see deception, whatever you see distortion of the message of Christ, wherever you see a body that calls itself a church, blatantly encouraging behavior on the part of its members or on the part of its ministers that are contrary to the Word of God and the law of God and making that official church policy, what do you see? You see the mystery of lawlessness at work. The beginning fulfillment of Antichrist, the beginning fulfillment of that last day's error and deception. Well, how do we counter that? Well, it's interesting that this whole thing should be juxtaposed by this third little vignette in this story of the Bereans. The Bereans pursuing truth. This is what you can do about the potential for the mystery of lawlessness to invade and insinuate itself into God's church. This is what you can do. They were more noble, we're told. The word is Eugenius, which originally meant a person of noble birth or well-born. These people, these Bereans, we're told, were noble because, says Luke, they received Paul's message with all eagerness. And then they looked into the words that, of the Old Testament that Paul was referring to as their final authority, and they were examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now I want you to notice what they're doing. They're listening to the Apostle Paul. They're not listening to Joe Bloggs or Liam Gallagher or anybody, you know, unimportant. They're listening to the Apostle Paul. But they're not prepared just to take what Paul says on face value. They're saying to Paul, what are you doing, Paul? You are, you are expounding the Scriptures. You are explaining the Scriptures. Well, we want to know whether you're explaining them right, that you're expounding them properly, that you are, in fact, unpacking what the Bible says, that you are engaging in exegesis, that is, getting it out of the text, not eisegesis, reading it into the text. And they examined the Scripture. Why do they do this? What are they afraid of? Well, they're afraid, you see, of error. They're afraid of God with a godly fear. They're afraid of misrepresenting God or his word, they know the implications. If they believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they see the implications of this for their, for their past background and their belief as Jews. They see the implications and they say, well, we need to be convinced, but we need to be convinced not by some salesman telling us that this is so, but by the very word of God. So they're, they're afraid of that. And what do they do about that? Well, they search the scriptures. Because they understand that the Scriptures are God's Word written. 
that God's Word written is without error, that God's Word written is self-authenticating and self-interpreting. And so they go to the Scripture and they test Scripture with Scripture. They examine the Scripture. Paul had argued the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. They go to the Scripture and they ask themselves, where is that in Scripture? Because they won't just take it without examining the Scripture. This is what Jesus had taught from a negative point of view, the people of his day. In John chapter 5, he said to, he said to some of the leaders of the church, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That's true, actually. He says, it's in them, it's they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What's he accusing them of? He's accusing them of having the Scriptures, of reading the Scriptures, of seeing the evidence there, but refusing to accept the evidence. I quoted a girl who came to a series of lectures that I was doing at King's College in London, and in the Q&A after one of those lectures, this lovely girl who's a Jewish girl said, Jesus is the Messiah we didn't want. That was the tragedy. That's what Jesus was accusing the people of. You have the Scriptures. These are they that testify about me, but you will not come to me that you may have life. And so Luke commends the activity of these Bereans. Because this is the bulwark against error in the church, isn't it? When he commends <clears throat> these Bereans, he's teaching us something about the Bible, that the Bible, the Scriptures are, are accessible to everybody, not just to the theological elite, not just to the scholars in the seminary, not even to the pastors in the pulpit. The Scriptures are accessible to all the people of God, and we, we exercise on each other, pastor and people, Theologian and church, we exercise on each other this check and balance when we all take responsibility to examine the Scriptures to see whether what is being said is true. This is the great counterbalance against error. It is the way of life. This, uh, this zeal for truth and their resort to Scripture, their testing of what they heard is the key to preserving the church during the time of the great tribulation that we are th going through in the world. Let, let me read you what Paul says again to the, to the Thessalonians referring to this from uh, 2 Thessalonians 2. He says this, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why? Because they refused to love the truth. They refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 
You see what a serious thing this is. These Bereans are commended because not only is this a bulwark against error to search the Scriptures, but it's the secret of life and it's the way of salvation. It's our protection from error and it teaches us how to live under the oppression of the spirit of Antichrist. So in the end, when Paul's writing to the Thessalonians, he says this again, we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he has called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. You see what Paul's saying to the Thessalonians? Be like the Bereans. It's as if he's saying to the church here at Tenth, be like the Bereans. This is how you'll stand firm. Hold to the traditions that you were taught, either by the spoken word or by the letter, by the word of God written. Well, may God give us the grace as we face tribulation of one kind or another. As a church of God today is going through so much tribulation, as error is coming from inside the church itself, as the temple itself is desecrated by false teachers and false leaders, as deception beginning in the academies of the church and in the seminaries of the church spills out into the churches themselves, as pulpits become the very mouthpiece of immorality and idolatry and false teaching. May the Lord give you and I the spirit of the Bereans to check the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. Because if they're true, I want you to know this tonight, if they're true, your eternal destiny hangs on these things. Where you will be one million years from today hangs on these truths. Whether you will a hundred billion years from tonight be enjoying this great universe God has created hangs on what you believe about the resurrection of this Jesus. And I encourage you tonight to embrace Him, to receive Him, to believe Him, to come to Him that you might have life. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would please take your word this evening, garrison our hearts and minds, and give us peace, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.